Hello and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Swansea, United Kingdom, and with me, as always, is... It's Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. U.S. of A. How are you, Lauren? Um, I'm okay. I keep having to mute my microphone because I keep sneezing. Here I go again. Yeah, I know. I, I keep hearing the click, 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 click. <laughs> it's... There you go. <laughs> Lauren's a little under the weather, folks. So, okay. you know, she may be sniffling and in, in, eating a cough drop or, mm. you know, whatever. So yeah, let's bear with her. But let's hear let's hear a sneeze or a cough or something, Lauren, just to make sure you're still with us. I'm still with you. Don't don't tempt it because I will sneeze. <laughs> I know you will. Oh, so how are you, Brian? I am excellent, Lauren. I had... A fantastic weekend. Did you? I did. I got to spend a little time with and see my childhood hero this weekend. Oh, was it the, um, oh, what was that man your mum took you to see and you had nightmares about it now? No, 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 no. It was not Twinkie the Kid. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Who's this um, mascot? Yeah, Twinkie the Kid. No, that would be that would that would not have been a good weekend. But this was this was Larry Holmes, the Eastern Assassin, the greatest heavyweight of all time, my personal childhood hero, still a hero to this day. And uh, he was at an event uh, fairly nearby my house, about about forty five minutes to an hour away. So me and my brother went up, and I got to spend a little time with the champ, and uh, that just makes me happy. Plus, do you know what tomorrow is? Well, today when you're listening to this, people. Um, the 1st of March. Which means season three of Mandalorian starts. And we're just, uh, just, uh, just a hair away from fancy rounders beginning spring training in Major League Baseball. Lauren, aren't you excited? And if you also have Disney Plus, you can also see season four of What We Do in the Shadows. Yes, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not bashing that. That's a great show too. But you know me and Mando, love that show. I the I baseball like spring training, Lauren. Aren't you excited for baseball season? Fancy rounders. <laughs> I know how much you love baseball when I talk about baseball and all the time. Didn't the guest like sort of prove that I was right about um, it being fancy rounders? Yes, yes, that was the great Ed Acorn. Uh, who will be coming back on the show soon, Lauren. You know, we've had him on twice before. Once to talk about old-time baseball, because he's written two of the greatest books in the history of books on old baseball, uh, The Summer of Beer and Whiskey, and, of course, uh, 59 and 84, The Story of Hoss Radburn. He wrote those great books, but he also is an Abraham Lincoln historian, and we had him on to discuss his last book, Every Drop of Blood. And his new Lincoln biography is out now. And uh, he'll be coming on the show to talk about the new Lincoln book. Wonderful. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I've got I got some other guests lined up, uh, some great shows coming up. We're going back into hard history. And today, we're going to talk wrestling. Mm-hmm. Now, just before you start making fun of me, I couldn't make this episode because no. I had a family emergency. No, that's true. And actually, the the next two episodes, because this one's, we talked so long, Lauren, <laughs> that it's a two-parter now. Well, that's all right. That's fine. 
But we we did, you know, I mentioned to them that you weren't there. Nikita thought you were avoiding him. No. <laughs> no, I he didn't. I love being there. But we have Nikita Brezhnikov coming back on, along with Terry Sullivan, who was a f- past guest as well. But bringing new insight to the show, my dear friend, and some people say my nemesis, Rodney West. Uh, of the West Brothers, Brent and Rodney West, Pro Wrestling Inside and Out podcast, the son of the legendary Ron West, and Rodney's coming on the show, and it's going to be so much fun. I love talking to those guys, and like I said, we rambled quite a bit. But the only thing I feel bad about you missing that show, because I think Theo would have loved to have jumped in on that conversation. Yeah. Although he doesn't know the old stuff. No. But we could educate him. No, he loved when I, because uh, he was with his dad the weekend that uh, WWE were in Cardiff. But he loved the Drew McIntyre t-shirt I got him. Oh, that's right. You got him that. He's, he he loves the wrestling, doesn't he? He keeps, he, does. the, he keeps it alive. He does. And uh, he would have loved, the, the guys would have loved talking to him too. Talking to a young whippersnapper because, you know, they were all into it when they were his age too, so. You know, we all know what it's like to see it through the eyes of a child as a fan, but it's going to be so much fun to talk to them. But we should also talk about emails. Oh, no. Yeah, Lauren, once again, you won the audience over to your side. Did what? Apparently, I'm obnoxious again. Oh, what do you do? I don't know, but I was told that. I was disrespectful to Chris Shelton by talking about pop culture with him. You have an expert on, on his topic and you didn't even let him talk about his topic. I'm like, no, we did half the show on his, what he talks about every day. And then as a gift, we let him talk about his other interests. He loved it. I think, I think also what we've got to remember is that he's lived it. It's not just what he talks about and what he does every day. It's also his lived experience. And we've got to be respectful. And we've also got to show people that he's more than just his lived experience of Scientology. You were there, Lauren. He loved doing all the pop culture stuff. He did. Did you see the smile on his face when we started talking about it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, and I'm so glad that he still has enthusiasm for sci-fi and fantasy after what he went through. Because it would be easier, you know, just to say, I can't even stand that genre. Because, you know, the basis of Scientology is... You know, this isn't meant disrespectfully. Is science fiction? But yeah, but the audience says I was disrespectful for that. Where, where I thought I was being a good guy. And I think we pretty exhausted the topic of Scientology. I mean, if we were to have him on again, we'd need to to talk about a different cult. Oh yeah, like uh, the Jedi. They're a cult. <laughs> so I got the audience mad at me. But we also got another. We got a lovely email from i've got to find her name here sorry i actually printed this out margaret margaret wrote in and said we've made references a few times about lauren reading stories has she ever done any and if so where can i download them um i think i did one for ansel but i don't know if you can still download it i'll have to check with him and get back to you on that yeah and you know i was thinking uh, you uh, did a video recently. Oh, my suffragette video. 
You did. And, you know, maybe you could do a little series of, of reading, maybe reading some Victorian stories or maybe even some medieval stories if you could find. Maybe you could do some readings of those because I think our audience would love to um, hear you I read think, stories. Well, Middle English is an acquired taste. And if I'm not careful, the audience might think I'm having a stroke. So. <laughs> and that would I be different from any other day. How? <sighs> You're horrible, Brian. This is disrespectful. <laughs> So disrespectful. You are. You make people people talk about pop culture. You evil person. I know. But no, I think it would be great if you could, you know, maybe we'll do some special videos for one of our uh, one of our social media platforms, such as, you know, you can go to Facebook, find our group, uh, History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian on Facebook. Search us out. Try to join. Send a request. Come on in the group. You can find us on Twitter at TA History. You can find us. Uh, what are what are our TikTok and uh, Instagrams? Uh, History Ramblings. That's for both. Yeah, so maybe we could do, maybe you could do some TikTok videos where you do little readings I or. I, I don't like it because it's only three minutes and you can't say very much in three minutes. I could say a lot about the bathroom buddy in three minutes, Lauren. Yeah, I know you can, but we're not sponsored by the bathroom buddy. <laughs> no, we but we should. Be. Be. We ought to be. Oh, the bathroom, buddy. You know, I know you're a little under the weather right now. I got a little sniffles going on. Probably got some achy joints and you're a little sore. Mm-hmm. Just imagine how the bathroom, buddy, would come in handy. No. <laughs> no. Well, I'm going to have to return your Christmas gift then. <laughs> it's a bit too soon to be talking about Christmas. Yeah, I know. Did you know... You know me, I find fun facts everywhere. Yeah. Did you know Beethoven used to raise chickens? Did he? Yeah. But he ended up getting rid of all of them. Because they kept calling him, Bok, 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 (laughs) bok. I knew that was a joke. (laughs) Yes, we got another email about my jokes, Lauren. People love the jokes. I got an email from Gary who sent me in a joke. So, Gary, this one is for you because it's your joke. Hey, Lauren. Mm Mm-hmm. What's the difference between a man in pajamas on a bicycle and a man in a tuxedo on a unicycle? I don't know. A tire. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. That was a. I love that one attire. Oh, I love my jokes, Lauren. I can't help it. Yeah. You know what else I love? Pizza. I love pizza. <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that I just started craving pizza like this second. What do you like on your pizza, Lauren? Um, I don't know. Chorizo is quite nice on a pizza. But you're not one of those 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 evil people that put like pineapple on it, are you? I I don't mind eating pineapple on a pizza. Oh, that's just wrong. Why would you ruin a pizza with pineapple? It's ham and pineapple. No, pineapple does not go on pizza. Pineapple goes on Carmen Miranda's head, and that's it. Pineapple is yummy. Do you realize no one in our audience just got that Carmen Miranda reference? I did. She was a dancer that wore fruit on her head. Yeah, fruit. Lots of fruit. 
Do they have juicy fruit gum in, in Wales? Yes. Do you like juicy Wait. fruit? Not really. No, it kind of sucks. It does. And it freaks me out because you don't know what fruit it is. Like, it's a well, yellow it, packet, so you think it's a banana, but don't taste like banana. I don't think it is fruit. Well, it says juicy fruit. Tastes like wallpaper paste. Yeah. Lauren, you are the show fact checker. Find out what fruit juicy fruit's supposed to taste like, because it doesn't okay. taste like any fruit to me. Should I do it on air? You can. And while you do that, I'll talk about fruit striped gum, if you have that over there. Now, the fruit striped yeah, gum was good, and it tastes like fruit. The problem is, after you chew it for like five seconds, it loses its flavor. Juicy fruit, on the other hand, sucks. So we're never going to be sponsored by them. What fruit is... Oh, it's meant to be a combination of um, banana and pineapple. That's why it sucks. Doesn't taste like either, does it? Might as well fucking put it on pizza. Or jackfruit. What fruits do you like, Lauren? Pineapple, peaches, nectarines, oranges. Apple, apple. peaches, pumpkin pie. Um, yeah, apparently it's um, it's meant to be a combination of banana and pineapple. Um, but other people say it's more like jackfruit. Who the fuck is jackfruit? I know Jack Frost. He was that dude in that claymation show. But Jack Fruit? I know Jack Tripper. Love Three's Company. Oh, what a great show that was. And others people say it's lemon, orange, pineapple, and banana. They got to make up their mind because it doesn't taste like any of those things. Do you like, like, exotic fruits? Um, Dragon fruit? Kiwi? Lychee. Yeah, I like kiwi. Lychees are nice. Oh, see, now I want, I want, I want pizza. But after I have pizza, I want some fruit. I think maybe grapes, maybe green grapes. You like the green or purple grapes? Green. Do you like black cherries or, or red cherries? I'm not a big fan of cherries. All right. Do you like what kind of apples? Granny Smith, Macintosh. Pink Lady. Ooh, those are good. I never had one of those until about two months ago. First time I ever had a Pink Lady. You've never, um, you've never had, um, you've never had fruit before? That's really shocking. Well, well in, in New York, you know, a lot of us eat Empire apples because that's what we grow here. I mean, and they're super cheap and, you know, that's an apple to us. But those Pink Lady, oh, those were good. Like blueberries? Yes. Theo likes blueberries. Remember when that chick turned into a blueberry in Willy Wonka? Yeah, have you heard what they're doing to um, Will Dahl? Well, what the... Nah, yeah, I don't agree with it, but people are freaking out in America over it. Then the people that are freaking out over them trying to censor a couple words in Will Dahl are the people that are trying to ban books. So they're hypocrites. (laughs) That's all I know. You can't change a word and roll down, but we're going to ban all these other books from our schools. Um, yes, To Kill a Mockingbird is always a favorite one that they like to. They they put out a list. Florida has like 350 books on their trying to ban books list. Is that are any of them The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, God, no. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's an instruction guide to them. Oh, uh, of Mice and Men. 
of Mice and Men is on their banned list, and I don't know why. Uh, why does... Ah, I have the list of complaints. Mm-hmm. Let's hear Profanity. some complaints about Of Mice and Men. Profanity, uh, morbid and depressing themes, and the author's alleged anti-business attitude. <laughs> Alleged anti-business attitude. Okay. And As other people say um, the American Library Association says it has been banned because of vulgarity, racism, and its treatment of women. But they're all they're, um But the thing is, is I don't think they were a representative of John Steinbeck's opinions. They are representative of the era that he was writing about. I also want to ask, what were the first thing you said? Profanity and um, what was it? Dark and depressing themes, because mm-hmm. those things never happen in life. No one ever fucking swears or has anything bad happen to them. Oh, go ahead, ban the book. But if they ever try taking the fucking movie version away with Lon Chaney Jr. and Burgess Meredith, they'll be hell to pay. Um, they have um. Um, an interesting point is, is they have removed it from the syllabus in this country as well. I studied it. I studied of mice and men when I did my GCSE, as did subsequent, as did a decade of other children after me, because they they just stuck to what they knew because it was easier than learning a new book every year because that and that's not lazy at all. Um, Plus, it's it a will, great book. It is a great book, but. I mean, you teach it, you're teaching the book, right? When you do, you're teaching the same book year after year after year, not because it's, and not giving your students a variety of literature because you know the book and you can teach the book without having to, um, you, you can reuse the same lessons. And I find that lazy because wouldn't, you know, I would want to be challenged. I want my class to be challenged. And one class, might be like yeah if mice and men suits them but then you take that book to another class and that might not be something that engages them so I think it's really lazy and bad of teachers not to challenge their students engage them and learn about their students I love that the I love that Florida man wants to ban like 230 books which I guarantee they've never read it's just one Florida man. It's just one. There's only one Florida man. <laughs> I would be a terrible English teacher because I would I would have a big like I would have a big list of books for my students to go and read and they wouldn't just read the set text. I'd be challenging them read to read outside class. I would be hated. Did you ever think about maybe teaching at a night school literature? Um I don't know. I don't know if they do this in Wales, but like where I live, they have these programs called adult education where adults can sign up to take classes and volunteer to take classes. And there'll be classes on literature or classes on painting or, you know, variety of things. Uh, My my co-author, Danny Murphy, teaches one every year on creative writing. But that'd be something interesting if you could like get a little side gig doing uh I don't I don't think we do that. I don't think it's something like I think if I ha, if I went and did that I'd have to do a formal qualification in teaching. 
but you know I do think and that's the thing that's that's why people don't read is because they've had such a bad experience with the literature that is set because at GCSE because that's when um in the UK that's kind of like you sit your GCSEs and then you move on to college or you move on to sixth form and you can leave education at 16 as well after GCSEs so but that's so that's really when reading habits are formed because that's when you start engaging with literature and you start thinking about it and you start dissecting it and it's just because the teachers have got so comfortable with what they teach they continue to teach it and I always think that every year the exam board should set a, a list of new books that don't include any of the books that you've learned that you had the previous year and I mean all teachers have two degrees they have um, an under, undergraduate degree um, and then they have the postgraduate degree so they are more than capable of learning a new book and reading a new book over the yeah. summer holidays in America they're not so, paid enough for that no I understand that and that's 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 the tragedy but our teachers you know it's not about teaching it's about ticking boxes and creating little people that can go and sit an exam rather than know things because you know you can have somebody that can pass GCSE like I have seen it when I worked in the cinema you can have somebody that can pass an exam in mathematics but you ask them to apply it in handling money and the lights are on but nobody's home you're depressing me lauren i i was very depressed it, it is it's like i have this big bugbear that Corey and theo can't tell time <laughs> they can't tell time no it's on their phone they don't they don't feel they need to they don't want to you mean they can't read a clock yeah they can't read a clock do they even teach clocks in 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 schools I now? I don't even know. I have no idea. Like I've asked them, has their teacher sat down? And because uh, I said, you know, I think that everybody needs to be able to tell time because it's not just about looking at a clock or your watch and going, oh, it's quarter to ten. It's about knowing I have twenty minutes to uh, go to the bus stop to catch the bus. I have fifty minutes to get to work. You know, it's about planning your day and it's about planning your time. And it's just those those are the skills children are lacking. Well, their phone tells them everything now. I know. They don't need that. They set alarms for everything. It's like they don't teach cursive handwriting anymore because no one needs it. Yes, they do. I agree. <clears throat> Although I can't read my own most of the time. They need to learn cursive writing, especially in America, because if you were to go to the archives, if you were to get a degree and you were to sit a history degree and you had to go to the um, you had to go to the archive to look at original manuscripts, which everybody has to do at some point, you will not be able to read that document. You are going to lose documents and documents are going to be destroyed in clear outs, you know, when archives have clear outs or deemed to be not important because people can't read what they say. Speaking of history, Lauren, why don't you clear your throat and give me uh, your day in history? Come on, give me a good day in history. Today in 
Lee. <laughs> it was a little weak, but you're sick, so we'll let you we'll let you slide. Right. So mine is the 20th of February, 1749. On this day, the first edition of Henry Fielding's novel Tom Jones was published. Whoa, whoa, whoa! She's a lady. That Tom Jones. No. You mean there's more than one Tom Jones? There is but one Tom Jones, Lauren. And it's the Tom Jones. I threw my underwear at Tom Jones once. Oh, you didn't. I did. Have you ever read the um, the history of Tom Jones of Handling? Of course. How he grew yeah. up in Wales as a poor child and became the greatest pop singer of all time. Love that book is to read the story of the foundling Tom Jones and his journey towards adulthood and marriage. It is a wonderful book. Um, I haven't read it probably in 25 years, but I have read it. It's one of the earliest English novels, and it was amazingly popular when it was published. Yeah, and it's. <clears throat> I'm going to warn people out there. If you listen to the show and you're like, I'm going to go get that book now. It's not the quickest read. It's not as big as Middlemarch, but it's bigger than Great Expectations. Yes. It is, let's just so say, you, writing has so, changed a lot. Yeah. Um, so um, both Middlemarch and Great Expectations are both very good books if you'd like to read those two. Maybe we'll get you to read passages from those books on one of our social media channels. I do not wish to be sued. <laughs> well, all right, then we'll move on to my day in history. You ready for this, Lauren? Go on. Today in history, February 28th, 1883, the very first vaudeville theater in the United States opened in Boston, Massachusetts. Vaudeville, a dead art form that needs to come back in such a big way. Absolutely. You know, that <clears throat> makes me think I want I, when I, you know, have a list of shows I want to do future shows and topics I want to cover. Like I said, we want to do a Joan of Arc show and our dear friend Allison Weir is going to come back on. I'd like to do a show on vaudeville on the history of vaudeville. You just want to talk about Tumblety again. No, no. I want to talk about vaudeville in the theater. And I, I, like I said, Lauren, maybe it's just me because I love that stuff. But I think it would make for a great show, don't you? I think it would, yes. You know, another show I want to do, uh, we want our great friend Kurt to come back on soon, Kurt Konecki from The Strange Sessions, which their new season just began. So you can go onto YouTube and search The Strange Sessions podcast, listen to the new season of that, and we'd love to have Kurt back on. So I'm going to set that up. We're going to have Kurt come back on soon. Do you know Absolutely. Kurt's from Wisconsin? Yes. Did you see the news out of Wisconsin? No. Oh, tragic story. <clears throat> so this, like, wedding photographer in Wisconsin was killed when a giant wheel of cheddar fell on his head. Isn't okay. That, yeah. That's not a joke. Well, no. I mean, the giant wheel of cheddar fell right on his head and killed him. I was waiting for you to turn that into, I thought, I thought that was one of your jokes. That's awful. Well, you know, to be fair, the people he was taking the picture of did try to warn him. 
Get it? Oh, I love it. Get it, Lauren? Say cheese. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just not a good one, huh? Well, no, because I thought you were being serious, and then you went, ah. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you for not laughing, but thank you to the audience for getting the joke. It took them a second, but they got it. No, I thought you were being serious. I thought, oh, gosh, is he setting up for a joke? Is he not? I was like, am I just laughing at somebody's misfortune? Well, where the cheese? fuck would a giant wheel of cheddar cheese come from that hit the photographer? I'm from the UK. <laughs> People chase a wheel of cheese down a hill. Oh, yeah, that's weird shit. I've seen that video. I don't get that. That, But, you know, I like it because I like cheese. I like cheese on pizza. I'm going to order a pizza when we're done, Lauren. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, that's nice. I don't get pizza. Well, you know, when you come to America, we're going to get you some good pizza. And, and I'll introduce you to Twinkie the Kid. I'll never come again. No. Well, here's something that's not a joke, Lauren. I am so excited for today's interview because we have three legends of the wrestling business that are going to discuss the 1970s territory wrestling. And we got Nikita Brezhnikov, the great Terry Sullivan, and the amazing Rodney West. So why don't I fire up the magic interview box? Yes, please. It's the magic interview box. All right, and you can flip the switch. All right, this is going to be so much fun. I cannot wait to have this conversation because we're going back and we're taking the time machine to the 70s. And we're going to talk when wrestling was believable and real and what led to it becoming the pop culture explosion it became in the 1980s. And I have got one hell of a panel. We are welcoming back the one and only master of WWWF knowledge and show legend, Nikita Brezhnikov. Nikita, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to this panel. Well, coming up next, nobody in the history of America could wear a frilly tuxedo shirt. <laughs> this man he was the voice and the face of my childhood for big time wrestling detroit in the sheik's territory the star in my opinion of the movie i like to hurt people the one and only terry sullivan <laughs> how Thanks. are you terry thank you thank you i'm still waiting for my academy award it got lost in the mail it'll be there any day yep yep and finally now, there are people who say this might be my nemesis because he has been ducking me uh, for a title shot for years. I've had scheduling problems. Ske scheduling problems. Yes, there's been problems with the airlines. Everybody sees that. You get caught in the just terrible, terrible plane problems. We have a man here who is second generation to the world of wrestling, Mr. Rodney West, whose father, Ron West, is universally recognized as one of the most likable, agreeable, intelligent, and important people in the wrestling business in the 1970s into the 1980s, Mr. Ron West, and his son who carries that legend to this day, Rodney West, comes to the show for the first time. Rodney, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you said about my father. My father loved the wrestling business. He started at age 14. He watched it 
you know, was, that was one of the first things he watched on television. He lived wrestling for many years. Even after he was done, he was still uh, very much wanting to be a part of it. Uh, when then he goes on to work with the circus, he loved the circus just as well. Kind of the same thing, you know, promoting the same thing. But, uh, yeah, appreciate you having me on. Well, what's amazing is in the 1980s, particularly around 83, 84, wrestling exploded into the mainstream of media. Um, there were toys, comic books, action figures. It was on everybody's mind. Everybody was watching wrestling. It didn't just come out of nowhere. You three know that what was done in the business in the golden age of the 50s when television came about and we saw wrestling on TV for the first time, there was a boom. But it wasn't till the 1970s where, in my opinion, I think should be the true platinum age of wrestling because i think it was the best the business ever was and it's what led to it becoming this explosion of pop culture and that's when it was all over the country in different territories and rodney you know you and your family in in georgia in the south and Nikita, you from Baltimore, but a WWWF Northeast fan, and Terry, the Detroit uh, Midwest kind of cards, all three different styles, but it was those things that made it gel into what it became. Uh, I'm going to start with Nikita because, you know, you're the evil empire. You're the ones that eventually conquered everybody else. But you, I think like me, agree that even your product was better in the seventies than it became by the pop culture time. What, what, what was your take on it? Well, I have described it as the seventies in all sports. And this is just my personal experience and my personal opinion. All sports was the greatest in the seventies. It was evolving and it was rogue yet confined i mean if it was baseball football boxing i mean look at today we have we don't even know who the heavyweight boxing champion is muhammad ali and george foreman or joe frazier any either of the two they would stop the world but with professional wrestling we were starting to see a transition which was still looked at as legitimate sport at least my eyes the eyes of a lot of people that were in my circle as a fan strictly as a ticket buying fan i was just a, a kid back then and it gave us a sense of something to believe in because what we were watching and yeah we heard from everybody about it was this it was that we didn't care we were able to sit there and when you went to the arena and watched and listened and heard the slam it was like a thunderstorm if anybody's from the east coast thunderstorms are like the wizard of oz it's unbelievable <laughs> it, it was like kaboom and it's like wow and of course when you had blood then it was like holy shit this is unbelievable so the 70s it it was the gateway to i i agree with you to a point with the 80s until the cartoons took over with hogan and that bullshit but and that's just the way i am guys i don't like any of that bullshit i liked bruno strongbow johnny valiant the valiant things people like that that's what made wrestling for us we didn't need pyrotechnics we didn't need music all we needed was you guys come to the ring get in there 
and give it to us, and we're happy. Yeah, and, and Rodney, I want to go to you next because you grew up around it. You saw behind the curtain, so to speak, even as a kid, and yet it was still magical to you. I mean, what would in Southern wrestling was much different than the Northeast wrestling. Uh, as a kid around the business, how did you view it? Uh, for me, that's all I wanted to see. That's all I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to be a part of. That's that was it was my life. I could sit down and watch a wrestling show, and it would be like it didn't, it was like on for ten minutes. I would be so just so enamored by what was going on and the amount of talent that was seen. And these are tremendous talent. They could easily entertain you for the entire hour by themselves. This is how talented these people are. They didn't need to cover up their lack of talent with pyrotechnics and, and music. Uh, they had basic raw talent, that talent that was able to connect with the wrestling fans up to this in, even to this day, you mentioned wrestling in the Chattanooga area where I'm from, and the first thing that they were talking about is Harry Thornton, Jackie Fargo, Tojo Yamamoto. That's who they talk about. Not the the not the wrestlers of today, not even into the 90s. They don't ever mention Sting or, or any of those. They mentioned those who were a part of the culture. This Harry Thornton was, a, you don't know who he is, He's a, he was a local uh, personality, did a morning show here in Chattanooga, and actually was a part owner with Nick Goulas in Chattanooga, also we're in Cleveland, Tennessee, and he was a uh, talk show host. Uh, he also was the host of the wrestling show, and he was one of the bigger. He was a just as big as a personality, uh, and Ontario can vouch for this of how important the announcers are. And he was just as big a personality uh, as any of the wrestlers so with Jackie Fargo or um, the Bounty Hunters. I saw Weingroff would come through. Uh, Dutch Mantel, whoever it would be, Harry was the voice, and and he made a connection. And of course, the every week that that show came on at five o'clock on Channel 12, and then you also later on moved to 3:30, and it was a part of the the culture. On Saturday afternoon, everybody had to be in to see the show. It was live, so if you missed it, there wasn't at that time in the 70s there really wasn't any recording. You were either there or you missed it. And then of course the to make it to, to round it all off, not only was the TV, but you had a live show. The big show wasn't in some other town. It was in your town. It was in your city. And you could be a part of the big the big night. My dad would also talk about would talk about the night that Jackie Fargo turned. He was at the auditorium. And that moment was a turning point for the entire company. And dad was in the back. He heard Jackie tell Nick, I said, we'll do this. But let me tell you, I will never turn back. And he never did. And he was a superstar. And to this day, he's one of those that people always mention when you talk about wrestling in this area. Can I ask a question, Brian? Yeah, please. Sure. Rodney, do you know my good friend, Scott Teal? You must. Yes, I do. I figured. <laughs> you, you're saying all these names who I don't know because I was East Coast. Well, and I've heard from Scott so many times. So that's wonderful. Here, here, here in Chattanooga, where we are strategically located, also got Georgia Championship Wrestling. And, of course, my dad uh, went there in 72. He had worked there off and on for Gunkel before. And then, of course, he worked with Georgia Championship Wrestling, was there for 12 years. And 
you could see the difference of night and day between the two different productions. At first, the Gordon Sully was not the original announcer that that was here. They used to do another production of the sports arena on Tuesdays in the mornings. And that show actually was the one that showed in Chattanooga and Jim Carlisle from Columbus, Georgia was actually the announcer for that. So in, in this area at one time, we could have, we got Nick Gula's show. We got Jerry Jarrett's show. And then we've got Georgia championship wrestling all at the same time, because, you know, at the one time, Jarrett mid late seventies, uh, Jarrett and Gulas were fighting. And so they tried to win. And by the way, Jarrett was uh, handily beaten in Chattanooga by Nick Goulas. But the um, Georgia Championship wasn't completely different. And, and you were talking about the significance of the 70s. Back then, there were multiple productions. And we talked about it before we come on air about how many productions were going on at the same time. There wasn't just one show that they were taking and putting out all over the place. They were they were shows exclusively for the market. Atlanta had it on with where they came from Superstation 17. Of course, it, back then it was WTCG, just 17. Uh, it was hosted by Gordon Soley. And then, yeah, like I said, you had the uh, show that was filmed on Tuesdays, which showed in Augusta and Columbus. Uh, from the sports arena. And then Columbus had its own TV show, Columbus, Georgia, hosted by Jim Carlisle. And then Macon also had its own show. So these I think these live productions were important. I think it made made more impact that if because it's happening in that market, than having a, a tape to come in. I'm, I'm hogging the show. Go ahead. No, I uh, I'm glad you brought that up with Thornton and, and Carlisle and then Gordon Soley, because. I, I, I really, and I know this is going to piss off younger listeners who love the modern product. The voice of the company really sold it to us as kids or as younger adults. You know, Nikita in WWWF, at that point you had Vince doing the broadcast and I, criminally underrated as a broadcaster. He was fantastic. Agreed, because he could deliver it. He made it sound legitimate. He would not just get up there. See, I, that's why people talk about Gene Okerlund. I say he was a carnival barker. I got no yeah. use for him. Yeah. Vince was great. He would talk. He would describe the action. He could get excited, but it was well, it was like watching a baseball or football game. He could deliver it as well as anybody else. And yes, very good. Very well said, Brian, very underrated as an announcer. A lot of people hate him and it's like, Put that shit aside. The man did a great, to me, and I said to him face to face, I said, if I'm in a coma, I'll know your voice, my wife and my mother's and Adam West, because I've heard it so many times over the years. Anything we watched, you were doing it. So that was great. Yeah. And Vince called it like a play by play announcer in a ball game. And, and Gordon did. And then and that's where Terry comes in, because of all the people on the panel, Terry was that voice for me as a kid. Really? In Buffalo? We caught the Sheik show in Buffalo. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. And Pedro. you, Pedro Martinez. Yeah. Yeah. But you filled those shoes too. You made it believable and authentic. It, it, you came in as a fan, not as a professional sports broadcaster. You came into this business as a diehard fan and took on that role. You know, you, you filled the shoes of Lord Layton, who was one of the great broadcasters of all time, too. Absolutely. You know, every now and then some people in their 
who saw me back in the day, the 70s, 50, 40 some years ago, they'll say, oh, my gosh, we just uh, worshipped you guys and you as the announcer. And, and I thought, well, I the guy I worshipped was Lord Layton. Lord Layton was a, a wrestler, a main eventer more often than not through the 50s and early 60s in Detroit, TV announcer in Cleveland. I think he did Buffalo. But it might have been a, the tape, the same tape that aired in both markets. But Lord and Lord Layton was, you know, he wasn't afraid to give a little back to the heels sometimes. But to me, he was just a, an idol of mine, the, the epitome of a man. <laughs> Go ahead, Rodney. Well, wasn't that the at the, at that time though? Wasn't the the announcer's position, a babyface position, where they called it out? Because that was typically that was the stick of Harry Thornton. He would call them out. He was, you know, he he didn't care. He would confront them like Lord Layton did. He confronted yeah. them. Uh, I I saw them. I saw a match just the other day with Lord Layton, which he interfered or well. He told the referee what happened with the Poffles match uh, <laughs> and from from London, Canada, and um, and I'm thinking, and the Poffles are all of Saul Weigroff's all in his face, but you can't do that. You'll pay for that, Lord Layton. You'll pay for that. Yeah. Awesome stuff. And I, that's not the first time. I actually watched Lord Layton slap the sheik. Oh yeah. I watched him right. slap the sheik right in the yeah. face. Yeah, he would. And, now, did, and, did he also do the show in Australia as well? Lord yes. Lord? He went in, uh, to the best of my knowledge, for a, uh, once for six months in 68 or 9, and then once for a year in 72. We were, talk, we were talking about Vince McMahon earlier, and I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I thought that Vince's commentary over the uh, the turn of Larry Zbysko and Bruno Sammartino was brilliant. Very was good. absolutely – Vince told the story in that uh, no one else could have done it any better. No one could have done it better. He was so important in getting that over. Yes, because the way he would say, okay, Larry Zbysko, now Bruno, he gave you your start. He's like, no, I'm not. I don't hate the man. Okay, we understand that. Why is it that you want this match? And then when it was time, he's like, Bruno, would you come here and address Larry? And Bruno come out. And then Vince's description of that match, as you're saying it, Rodney, it was perfectly done. Wasn't crazy screaming like a hair is on fire, mm-hmm. but it was like, what? He would give you that, oh shit, I can't believe what we just saw, kind of a. interpretation of the description of what we watch and it's like you needed that you had to have that yeah we got eyes it was good to watch but you needed that vocal to go with it and yeah in my opinion he he delivered it yeah i uh, like i said i think vince is criminally underrated um i was asked on another show to name who are the five best wrestling broadcasters you were there with you yeah, I was on that show. Yes. Yes. And I remember I said, Vince. Yes. And some of the people didn't like that. I said, uh, Gordon Soley. I said, um, Lance Russell and Terry Sullivan. There you go. He said yeah, that, Terry. He's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys made me believe it. Terry did something that the other ones didn't is that Terry would be interviewing them. And, and look, at I'm going to make you blush, Terry, but I want you to talk about this afterwards. Where 
you could make it look like you were actually intimidated by them, but then you would remember you have to stop them and you have to interrupt and be <laughs> the voice of reason, even though you were a little scared. The other, no one else did that like you did. <laughs> well, it was uh, legit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just getting into the character. You know, some of them were my very good friends, and then you had somebody like Abdullah the Butcher, and just like, I had don't really have a hundred percent trust this guy pull out of fork and cut my jugular. But yeah, that was just, uh, that was a lot of fun, a tremendous amount of fun. And, and especially to work with some of the great interviews like Ernie Roth, the weasel and, and tax McKenzie, for example, um, Costello was Costello and the kangaroos were good. We had George Cannon, one of the best out there then, Pampero Furpo in his own. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we had some good ones. And Killer Brooks did some darn good interviews, too. And thank you, know, you for sending and sharing Ernie Roth with us, because when he became the Grand Wizard, oh, yeah. you know, he just caught fire. That was great. Yeah. You know, I and we were talking a little bit earlier about all the local TV shows, and Ernie got his, not necessarily, uh, well, he, in his early part of his career, he was doing some of those local television shows as the announcer. He was doing them in Canton, where he was from. He did uh, he did Cleveland, and a funny story about that is he was doing the Cleveland show at Channel 61, which was a, a, a show especially for the Cleveland market, didn't go anywhere else. And it was just Ernie out there, the way he regularly looked. And the next week, we were introduced to the manager of the Sheik, Abdullah Farouk. And Ernie came on with this like ten cent mustache and goatee for <laughs> not a lot of awards. And he tried to change his voice a little bit, and then he was on. He went, but he had a what a history that man had in the business as a promoter and really out there hustling. And unbeknownst to many, he was McMahon Senior's right hand man. He carried his mail. He was. Very well trusted, believe me. Yeah, I've heard that, and I, I definitely had that sense. He had a real reverence whenever he talked about uh, Vincent J. And he loved Junior. That was his boy. In fact, there's a picture of him looking at him, and it's like, it's definitely man love. And it's like, <laughs> and rightfully so. He was correct. Yeah. This guy's on his way, and you see what he is today. My wife was telling me that. He's trying to sell the company for $9 billion. It's like, ooh, unbelievable. Billion. Yeah. Uh, Terry, you, you, you briefly were part owner of a company. You got $9 billion for yours, right? $9 billion uh, hateful phone calls and collection agencies. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you get for trying to start a wrestling company with no money. Now, I do want to do a little sidebar here. A um, little bit off topic, but... At this point, different people would travel the country to play different territories for little bits and pieces of a time. One man who worked in all the places you, the three of you were, sadly just passed away, and that was Lanny Poffo, yeah. um, who got his really first big push um, outside of you know their own little outlaw company up in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And you know he worked with all of you. Anybody got any Lanny Poffo memories they want to just? express because we sadly just lost him 
Well, I can tell you, Lanny came into Detroit uh, as a result of uh, a bunch of us leaving and forming the opposition promotion. And that was the good thing about Detroit, that, uh, about an opposition, was the Sheik was able to reach out and bring in some hot new talent. Uh, and the Poffos and Saul Wangaroff were three of them. The Islanders, uh, Sika and Afa, and I think their first decent-sized territory run. Yeah, a few others, too. What about uh, George Steele, Terry? Because he was a favorite. Yeah. And I, I actually was staying at a producer's house one time, and I was two blocks away from where he lived because I talked to him when I was when I got back. I'm like, Jim, I said, I think I'm on the – Johnny Valiant was telling me, he said, that he, he called him Gorgeous George. He said, that's it's Gorgeous George's school that you're down the street from. I'm like, really? I thought he was in Madison. I'm in East Mountain. He said, no, that's it. You've got it. And so, of course, you know, Jim's like, yeah, that, I was one, one block away. That was at Lawrence Avenue. I'm like, wow, that's really <laughs> cool. But, of course, you, the history, and Terry, you can probably tell it. I'll shut up. But that man, wow. He, he was like Moses with the Red Sea. He just looked at our direction, and we were jumping over each other. Get the hell away from this maniac. <laughs> he was another one I had to stay away from. Yeah, he was – what was – oh, God, what was his name in Detroit when he was under the mask? The student. The student. That's and, right. Uh, his manager, who was in his first few years in the business, was Gary Hart. So the Sheik, at least at that point in time, had a pretty good uh, uh, eye for talent. They had been in the area before Sheik took over, but they immediately came with him. Now, Rodney, did, did, did Lanny ever appear where you were with your family? We we did not have Lanny, but uh, Randy, Randy Savage came, and he worked down there with us, but Lanny did not. Uh, the, the, uh, we did see him. He was on Chattanooga. He worked for Nick Goulas. Uh, he and uh, Randy Savage ran, ran at the same time. Uh, and. The father also ran with uh, with Nick Goulas at the time. That's the only time we saw them. And the next time, thing we know, Randy Savage was gone from Georgia, and then they were running their own thing in Kentucky. And of course, they were all part of the thing in Knoxville. So that's the last time that uh, that that we knew him. Because and then Randy Savage didn't last very long in Georgia. I'll tell you my my favorite memory I have of Lanny. Uh, when when I was starting my book, The Wrestlers, Wrestlers and Masters of the Craft, professional wrestling available on Amazon and all fine booksellers everywhere, people. But when I was reaching out to people uh, to interview for the book, one of the people I talked to said, you know, you should really talk to Lanny Poffo. And I said, oh, I'd love to talk to Lanny Poffo. I don't have his number. And he goes, oh, I'll give him yours. And I'm driving around with my brother one day, and all of a sudden I get a voicemail. So I said, yeah, I wonder who's calling me. I put it on speakerphone. For anybody who thought that Lanny's voice and cadence was character, all I hear is, uh, this message is for Brian. <laughs> this is Lanny Poffo calling. <laughs> he was 100% that way. Yep. And I called him back and I said, hey, can we talk for a few minutes about the business and your career and everything? And he's like, oh, absolutely. We stayed on the phone for three hours that night. And he called me back a couple more times, and we talked for some. That's the kind of guy he was. He was so open, and he, he loved it. And yeah. He an amazing it. guy. I got to hang with him because he's good friends with Evan Ginsberg, who's a 30-year friend of mine doing different shows and promotions that Evan put together. And he would have Lanny on a regular basis, and always a great guy. Never 
saw him give anybody a heart fan wise, always yeah. open, willing to sign, not always say, give me 50 bucks. And that kind of, you know, very good person. He understood. He understood where, how you get there, where you come from. Yeah. That's, that's important. Another guy that I want to talk about real briefly, uh, not necessarily really briefly that we lost recently, uh, was Jerry Jarrett. Mm-hmm. Passed away. Who had a big influence on the business, Rodney? You're probably uh, closer to Jarrett than any of us, uh, physically, anyway. Well, uh, Jarrett uh, actually was the was very instrumental in getting our father into Georgia Championship Wrestling. He was booking at the time, and of course, Jarrett would come from Nashville to uh, go to Atlanta do TV, and they picked Dad up in the car, and they would drive down, and Dad would handle the. Uh, because Jerry wasn't there, he'd go back to run his own. And so Jerry was the one that when it came time for him to leave, he recommended dad for his position to be the, the right hand man of Jim Barnett. And then he was there. So we owe a tremendous amount to Jerry Jarrett, even though I don't agree with him on a lot of things. But uh, anyway, um, but Jarrett was very um, he, he was a trendsetter for sure. He knew the business. He knew what people wanted to see, especially in the Memphis area. And from what I was seeing, he was very uh, working very closely with uh, Bruiser up in Indianapolis. He was working very closely with Georgia. Um, he was uh, he, he brought the you were talking about the popularity from the 70s into the 80s. He actually introduced a lot of the stuff that we we now see with the videos that were done back then. Uh, Jarrett really, really set the standard from the videos. And then the all of the different names for the, the different teams, from the Fabulous Ones, Midnight Express, et cetera, basically came from Jarrett's promotion. So tremendous man, um, very intelligent, uh, very creative. Uh, Jerry Jarrett was, uh, was, um, was uh, one of a kind, was one of a kind and uh, truly will be missed. Terry, you got anything to say about Jerry? Yeah, I uh, I respect him certainly for his record, his record of success for the most part. And the biggest thing I respect him for as sort of a TV guy is the enormous ratings that Memphis Television pulled. And on any given Saturday, 80% of the televisions that were on at that time were tuned to Channel 5 or the whatever the one before Channel 5 was. And not just for a couple of weeks. No, years and years and years. And the amount of money in, in, in Memphis that he was able to draw. And I know he had a lot of down years, and he always admitted that. But... My goodness, the, the the people he put through that Coliseum on a weekly basis amazes me. Nikita, what were your what was your take on uh, uh, Jarrett and his style, which was so different from the Northeast style that you were grow, you were used to? Yeah, I don't really have a lot on him from just from what I've heard and what Nikolai had told me through the years. Nikolai always respected him, very happy, worked with him many times, and if you got the mark of Excellence from Nikolai, then you good man is all I can say. I gotcha. Yeah. And Jared, I hear, was uh, supposed to be the man to step into Vince McMahon's place had the steroid trial ended with him going to jail. Mm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very good. Now, Rodney and I were talking yesterday about someone that actually did play another, another man who played a 
pretty big role in, well, not as big a role in Detroit, but he did play a role there. And that this is where I think wrestling started the turning point that was going to bring it to pop culture normalcy. And that was Bob Backlund, because he was believable, and he was an all-American guy you could look up to and kids could look up to, and yet who still believed he could go. You believed he would twist you into a pretzel. And I know he got a start down with Rodney and them, but really made the impact for Nikita in the WWF. And he did come in to help out the Sheik a few times in Detroit. But do you guys think I'm way off base? You could say, Brian, you're fucking nuts. Do you guys agree with me that Backlund may have been that shift and that turning point? Well, he was a part of it. But uh, I, I think there were a lot of parts in motion from a lot of different, uh, you know, a lot of different sides, essentially. I mean, I think the, the momentum had been building for years. Now, the story goes that Vince Sr., I believe, was looking and asked uh, different people in the South. He wanted that all-American look. Because where the confusion comes in on the East Coast, where they said Backlund did draw, that's bullshit. I bought the tickets at that time. He was over <laughs> with us. He drew. And they wanted that look. Bruno was Bruno. You're not ever going to duplicate that. So that's fine. He's over with superstar did a great job, Billy Graham. And now it's time because good must conquer evil. That's just the way they looked at it and did business. Billy Graham got the run that he did and he, he carried it well, but they wanted a face. They had to have a, a very good looking young guy. And from what I understand that Backlund was the selection. However, People say that Vince Sr., when he made a promise, he kept it. It's like, let me tell you, if Backlund didn't draw, he'd be out the damn door. Just like Pedro Morales. Pedro was doing good for a while, but in the non-ethnic cities that he drew, he wasn't. Because Bobo Brazil carried Baltimore the summer of 73. Yeah. So it's like, if you ain't drawing, you're going to get your bags packed. They don't care who you are or what was said. They got to make the money. And that's it. That's the bottom line. Yep. And 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 uh, Backlund was weaned onto the business uh, down by you, Rodney. You right. guys made Backlund. Well, he started down there. We worked in, in worked in Florida. In fact, and I think that's Eddie Graham was the one that actually recommended Bob Backlund to Vince Senior. Um, and he was in Georgia. He was uh, Bob Backlund was in Georgia, held wrestling too, with Georgia heavyweight championship match on television, held wrestling too to a time of it draw on television. Right before, I mean, it was right before he left and went up to uh, and became the WWF champion. And later on, he comes back as the WWF champion. And then, of course, I don't understand it, but the company act like he'd never been there before. <laughs> I never did quite understand that, but he was just, I mean, he was just there the year before. He was just there the year before. <laughs> did uh, he, Bob Eklund, come out of Vern Gagne's training yes. camp? Yes, he did. Everything with Vern? A little. Did he? Yeah, he did a little. Sure, they all did. That, you know, were in the camp. But uh, he, when we first saw him, the problem was on television, he looked like a skinny kid. When you saw him in person, you could see his definition. It's like, wow, this is a little bit different than what we see on the tube. And now his strength is believable. But then he would 
do these different displays of strength when you lift people up for the ass bump with the atomic knee drop and the soup, the chicken wing suplex. And it was like, yeah, he can do it. It was humble enough. Some people didn't like his shyness in the on the promos, but it's like that's what the hell they wanted. But that's who he was. He really didn't get a whole lot of bullshit. That's who he was. No, I got a great story that my co-author told me. Um, Dan Murphy, the great legendary Dan Murphy of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, countless books on wrestling, and one of the truly great wrestling historians and great people, by the way. Danny, if you're listening, we all love you. He wrote a letter to Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund used to have a P.O. box advertised in the back of the wrestling magazines in the late 70s and in the early 80s. And Dan said when he was a kid, he wrote a letter to that P.O. box about how he wanted to take up wrestling and go into amateur wrestling in school. And do you have any advice? And he got like a six page handwritten letter back from Backlund about how to train, what to do, how to be. He said it was that genuine. And then years later, when Danny was, you know, in the business and he had run into Backlund in an event, he brought up that story and said, you know, and you wrote me back this heartfelt letter and it was amazing. And Backlund said, I kept that P.O. box open for over a decade just so I could talk to kids about trading and taking it seriously and everything. That's what I loved doing. I mean, he was that genuine, a good guy. Yes. Visiting hospitals, veterans centers, running training camps for the little ones and like 10 years old and a little bit older. He gave back to the people and he would say it without you. I'm nothing. And then. Boy, that's so true. If you don't buy the tickets, nobody's going to be able to pay you, give yeah. you the check, so nothing's going to happen. Sure. How long was it before Backlund was champion? I know he was there before, and it wasn't like Hulk Hogan just walking in and taking the belt. He he was built, correct? Yes. His first appearance was April of 77, and then after that, his uh, – they they started to bring him on one second. <laughs> the beautiful thing about doing a, a panel show, these things happen. Yes. Thing is on fire. Revenge woman. <laughs> then they started to bring him in on television a little bit week after week. He was doing a lot of tag teaming. But then uh, they started to push him as single. That uh, he made his uh, next garden appearance. Uh, so he started April and then September, September 26th, he beats Pretty Boy Larry Sharp. Then in December is when he basically was starting to make a full run of the circuit, filling, fulfilling his other commitments in the other areas. And then he was just basically WWWF. See, so now I'm glad you, you brought up Bobo Brazil earlier. And Bobo was a monster in Detroit. In the Detroit territory, and I don't want to be the downer here, Terry, but Detroit was the first one to start fading in popularity. Was it? And I think it might have been the Sheik insisting on being a bad guy on the top of the card all the time as your champion. But Bobo, even though it was the Sheik's town, I mean, people would not go to a show if the Sheik wasn't on it for years in Detroit. But Bobo was as big as the Sheik ever was, too, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really was. Uh, I didn't know you were one of the first to go down, but maybe you're right. Uh, but it, it did. It was gradual over several years. Um, 
Yeah, but anyway, I forgot the question. I'm old. No, about about. Do you think that Detroit would have done better if they'd have put a baby face like Bobo as their main face for for a good period of time instead of keeping the belt on the Sheik? Bobo held the title like five times. Firpo held it for a, a while. It circulated, but sometimes not for very long, and it always ended up back on the Sheik. But your point is a good one. He the, he should have been able to see that the formula was no longer working. And uh, instead, he took it even more extreme in terms of blood and violence and matches that never actually got underway because he'd come out and hang him with a coat hanger and they'd get counted out, whatever. And, uh, and now, hey, now, Terry, did you, you have Farkas up there a couple of times, the Wolfman? He was pretty much a regular, he and Dave. What so? Yeah. Bear Man. Oh, yeah. and Dave, yeah, McGinnity, yeah. yeah. Because Bearman had his own promotion up in in Ontario, and one of the most prolific promoters ever. The guy ran all the time, sometimes two shows a day up there. But Wolfman was uh, one of his regulars. Somebody, really? I saw, I posted an old uh, ad the other day, and it was Gene Dubois. And somebody said, "Who the hell is that?" I was like. Well, let me explain who Gene Dubois was. <laughs> yeah, he was a good yeah, you guys are making me look like a schmuck because I'm talking about how it was so believable and real. And then you're like, did you have Wolfman there? <laughs> <laughs> I liked it better when they called him the Canadian Wolfman. I thought that was <laughs> there you go. a little touch of class. <laughs> but we all know the real Canadian Wolfman was uh, Joe LaDuke. <laughs> LaDuke was a monster. Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. Now. What I loved about Detroit as a kid, see, I was lucky. Where I was, we were one of the first places that had cable. So we were in Georgia, WWF, but primarily WWF was, was my big thing growing up because Northeast. But we did get Tunnies out of Toronto until Vince took that over, and then we were still getting the Toronto feed. We did get, um, in the especially the late 70s, very early 80s, we got uh, Detroit. We got all kinds of us. Even we would have it. We would get rare Portland shows would come through once in a while. Yeah, yeah. I I, I remember now after Pedro got out, then our tape started. Would have been in seventy two, seventy three. What what I loved is they were all so different, and there was nothing similar about watching Georgia, and watching New York, and watching Detroit. It was a it was a magic world because it was all so different. Oh yeah, and we all have our favorites because of where we grew up. I got all of it, so yeah. I was lucky. My head exploded. And applause yeah. to the guys that could adapt their style to each individual territory, which was different. They all ran differently. Yeah, and instead of having two employers like today, they had thirty major employers around the country. Around the U.S., not to mention Canada. Now, just for the benefit of the audience to realize, uh, George Sire, who is the historian for the uh, AWA, Vern Gagne's organization, was supposed to be on the show but had to cancel last minute. So he's not here. So we probably won't talk too much about AWA. We'll do another show with him on it eventually. But... Eat my cake. My cat apparently just broke into my girlfriend's snack cakes and ate them. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> it was, it was, 
Leave that cat alone. It's hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Billy was eating pound cake. Thank you. Oh, bud, you're going to be cleaning up lately. But <laughs> where was I going with this? Oh, the different territories, the different regions. Do you think Detroit could have adapted to a, to a Memphis style and still kept their fan base? Or, or even better yet, do you think New York could have gone with what the Sheik was doing? Or do you think every region needed its own, and that's kind of what made it magic in the 70s? Well, I think the Sheik was a little more extreme. McMahon was probably a bit more conservative. Uh, so you got to find your niche in the city, find what works. Uh, today, you'd research the audience, but back then, you just got to try stuff out, and, and some of the stuff's going to work, some of it isn't. You know, and, and guys back at that time when the territory era, you could take a look in Amarillo and see, oh, they've got Dickie Murdoch down there. Why don't we? Uh, he's a new face up here in, in uh, Detroit because there aren't any other television shows that come into Detroit, any wrestling shows. So you bring Dickie Murdoch in and he does his thing, does his main events, raises hell, and then he can go to another territory if he chooses. And, then no, sure. by the time, and some of them, by the time they uh, uh, really made names for themselves, only worked the big towns in the different territories. New York was bloody, but Lou Albano took it up a couple of notches. Lou would be ridiculous, but we loved it because we wanted to see him murdered. Put him in there with Strongbow, Bruno, Pedro. He's just going to he's going to slice and dice. Yeah. And he, he didn't even care if you know what was going on, but he bled. You got to give the man credit. He was not afraid to bleed. He was absolutely insane. I loved him. I got to know him over the years and learned a lot from him. But boy, he was a blade master. Holy moly! And Rodney, what do you think about that whole? Uh, the styles didn't always translate, but well, even inside territories, certain things didn't get over. Even in certain territories, even in Georgia, stuff that you did in Columbus, you can't do in Augusta. It's a total. They're totally different markets, and you need to know your markets. And I think that was what was going on there. We're talking about, you know, some shows without the sheik on it wouldn't draw. Well, that's the way it goes. Certain things sell in certain markets. For instance, probably Bob Backlund would not sell in Atlanta, Georgia. He just that just wouldn't go. I'm just sorry, it just wouldn't go. Uh, Bruno Sammartino just didn't go in Georgia. They tried and he, he didn't it did not work for Georgia. So different areas, different markets, they they bought different things. And that's that was the key to every promotion. That stuff in Memphis would not have gotten over in Georgia. I'm sorry. It just would not have been done. They would not sit there and allow a baby face just to be beaten relentlessly with no one coming out making the save. It did did not happen. In fact, you would kill your TV and probably be taken off of some of the markets. Uh, TV stations would take you off because of that kind of violence. You just couldn't do that in Georgia. Um, it's kind of like uh, Memphis, Nick Goulas, Sheiks. They're basically this, or to me, they were always the kind of the same genre. Whereas Florida. Georgia and and the mid, mid Atlantic Crockett was the same. That was basically the same show. Uh, the, the fields, like I said, the fields Nick Goulas Chic show were were basically the same. They, they were basically the same. And it's a good point, Rodney, because back then the big X would come over the TV, not for blood, yeah. but like 
Mulligan's claw. They yep. thought it was too violent. You weren't yep. going to see the claw. And it's like, wow. Of course, we wanted to go to the arena and to see the claw. To but. see the claw. And it made it actually many people would say, well, that that's just trying to cover it. No, that made it better. Yeah, it because did. your imagination to what this is was far worse than what it really was. We, yes, without a doubt. Yeah, but is there any censor? It was that it wasn't done for marketing. It was censored. Yes. But is there any wonder that uh, Rodney's father and Rodney went into the circus afterwards? <laughs> and and the circus is very much the same. Some some markets the circus is just not going to do good in. And they know they the owner of that circus knew which ones were buying the circus tickets and which didn't. And so you stayed away from the ones that didn't. Same thing there. And and like you were saying earlier, if Backlund didn't draw, he was gone. There were not going to be. It wasn't going to wait three, four months before they get somebody else in there. No, it would have been instantaneous. The first Madison Square Garden that was awful, he would be gone. Now, here's a good story. Ken Patera almost died on the vine because his first match with Bruno on January 17th in 1977, there was an ice storm. The rails were shut down, the subways. It was like zero degrees outside. They were 6,000 short. The old man said to Bruno, he's done. Because they had a three match. And Bruno said, no, 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 it's not him. Wait. <laughs> it can't help the weather elements. And it proved true, but he almost died on the vine. They were yep. not playing any games. And it, and it was it, it was Bruno that had to go to bat for him. And that's, yes. I mean. He if it wasn't that, he would have died on the vine. That would have been sure. the end of it. But what does that say for a guy like Chief J. Strongbow, who appeared in Detroit? Georgia, Northeast, and he was always popular. He'd always bring the people in. Yeah, that's the, that we were talking about being able to adapt to different to the different uh, genres, if you will. Exactly yeah. what he did. Wall McDaniel was another one that could do it. He could easily uh, adapt to whatever whatever they they needed for the for the market for sure. Which is funny, because when I was talking to one of Rodney's favorite people in the world, um, Ron Fuller. Yes. Uh, I asked him one time about going from territory to territory, because, you know, he was not only a headliner, but a owner and everything. He's like, you don't change. You be you no matter where you go. And that doesn't necessarily translate. Not normal business. No, but then you got to look at Toronto when they would all appear on the Sunday shows at Maple Leaf Gardens from all the different territories. It was like a Super Bowl, you know, and it was like they all had to blend together and work together. And it did. It worked. Okay. It was great. And nobody else did that except here and there. And 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 Ron Fuller is an enigma to himself. There's not many people. That is six nine and able to throw a drop kick. There are just not that many of them. Exactly. And so when you when you see this big man come walking in and you're gonna think, oh well, he's slow. No, Ron Fuller is not, not he is not slow. And his style, no, he didn't have to change it from place to place he went to because he was impressive. And when he threw that first drop kick, and it was it's been a while since we saw him in Georgia, he came on television, he threw that first drop kick on television, we're like, whoa. <laughs> and I mean, it, and he was on his way to really getting over. But the fact of the matter is, he wasn't there to get over for Georgia. He was there to promote his own shows in Alabama. That's the only reason he was on the show. Well, and when he you said say, that. When you say 6'9", you make me think of the big cat, Ernie Ladd. He was all over the place. Detroit, right. 
Northeast Georgia, he could get over everywhere. He was great. And that and that's and it's his own style. He didn't have to adjust to the style. He had his own style. Best on the mic. Let's just be honest. Very he, could, he could he could talk those people into the seats. That also calls a riot without after a heart punch. Hey, yeah, <laughs> if he could go anywhere, he could be the heel. He could be the face. He and he was one of those who could sort of cherry pick his his bookings too. He didn't necessarily have to rely on one specific area in the small shows as well as the big shows. He just worked a lot of the big arenas. You know, another thing about wrestling at, at this point was it meant so much to their communities and their areas. Uh, these people were local legends local icons local heroes absolutely and i'm glad you actually used the phrase that you know er, er, the big cat could start a riot because terry on your amazing show on rocks tv big time memories you guys did an entire episode about how the sheik may have stopped a riot oh yeah uh this is really Dave, my co-host, Dave Brzezinski's story, but uh, I'll, I'll try to give his story justice. Uh, they ran a show at Cobra Arena the, the night when riots were going on all around them and people, police were, you know, essentially everywhere, not allowing people to go, not allowing people to go out, ordering people to stay home, basically. And, and uh, the Sheik... Uh, had a match coming up with Bobo Brazil at the Cobo Arena. And basically, according to Dave, the plan going into that was that the Sheik would win again. But instead, the Sheik decided to do something that would help, try to help heal some of the raw emotions by having all these black and white people together, 12,000 of them in Cobo Arena, all cheering for the same thing. And that's the way it happened. It was a pretty neat story. Excellent. Yeah, he helped quell the race riots by getting the black guy over where all the people were cheering for him. Yeah. Not just yeah. the black crowd. What's the message Everybody. there, people? <laughs> Except probably Dave, who was a chic, uh, chic fanatic. He was probably cheering for the chic. <laughs> no doubt, yeah. <laughs> I have to ask the question. Okay, I'm not trying to, as you know, I'm not trying to start anything. But is this for Terry? This is, this is what I'm going to ask. I noticed that the managers up there for big time seem to stand on the ring apron during the match. I've noticed that. In every, I, I noticed the Critch, both the Critchmans did it. Uh, Clemens did not, and Saul Weingroff did not. But I noticed they stood on the ring apron. And actually, in, in, in many cases, actually in the match with the no disqualification. Could you explain that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was rule. The rule was and the rule which I would have insisted that the Michigan State Athletic Board of Control enforce because it is one of their rules is that, as you know, people are not allowed. Random people just can't come up out of the audience with their popcorn and stand along the apron of the ring. And it doesn't matter if they're managers or not. But yeah, we had Ernie, Ernie Roth rarely did that, but occasionally he would. And some would allege at that time he might have handed some object, of some question to the sheik. But no, they shouldn't be up on the ring. I'd disqualify him immediately if I were the referee. 
I, I, I was watching that. I, I went through. I did. I did. a. I, I watched them all day long. Big, big time wrestling. And I said, why is he standing on the ring apron? And in the in the loser leave towel match with the Sheik and Mark Lewin, he was actually in the ring and yeah. pulled Lewin off without a disqualification. Yeah, the managers definitely would get physically involved. And then they would uh, then uh, Sheik won by a countout. <laughs> he won the title and the loser league by a count out. He threw a fireball and hit Critchman and, and Mark Lynn at the same time. It was great. I love the I love the thing of throwing the fire and hitting both at the same time. Now see, he threw a fireball. And what you were just discussing, the state athletic commissions yeah. couldn't be around the ring because they don't want you to get hurt. Right. I had to have a license as a manager, even as a second. And at one time I was in New York and they were driving me crazy. One of the commissioners, he said, look. We don't touch here. I said, managers don't touch. I'm like, fine, I got you. The fifth time he came up to me and he's threatening arrests, not just uh, civil sanctions. I pulled out my badge because I was still active. I said, pal, I understand what you're talking about. Can you leave me to hell alone? I'm not <laughs> doing any of that tonight. Okay, I'm, I got you. Please leave it be. But see, that's why when Pete, I say, don't use that F word, fake, because there's no such thing in wrestling. You can call it true fiction because we all had to have a license. We all had to have a physical things. People today are crippled from what they did in there. Don't you dare use that F word around me. Yeah. No. And we were talking before we went on the air that it's some things are definitely not fake. Um, Terry, you, uh, you, you took a couple bumps on the microphone. <laughs> One from my fat, my dear friend, Terry, Terry Funk. Yeah. Terry Funk got, uh, he was angered at me. He was all hot with Mark Lewin, and then I got to interview him after that. <laughs> Thanks for that. And uh, Terry's going on. I said, I want you to tell the people out there that I am the best wrestler in the world. And I said, I certainly tell them you're one of the best in the world. No, you tell them I am the best in the world. And this went on a few more times, and finally he says, you tell them. And I says, I am not going to say that. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that was not a fake hit. <laughs> no. well, I'm sure you yeah. got a two potato on that one. Yeah, right. And I told Terry that I was talking to Terry Sullivan about, and I reminded him about that incident, and Terry laughed, and as only Terry could, said, tell him I'd do it again, but I still love him. <laughs> that is such a good impression. <laughs> oh, Terry's a wonderful guy. Both Terry's are wonderful guys. Oh, yeah. Terry Sullivan got to be, in my opinion, the star of I Like to Hurt People. If you haven't seen that movie, folks, find it and watch it. It's the greatest wrestling documentary film ever made. How insane was it because this is still the era of completely keeping kayfabe mm -hmm. with a film crew around doing this they were mainly around at the matches uh, and other than occasionally wanting to get some shots of somebody slamming them and close-ups and things like that which they would do in the middle of the ring while the crowds are there at Kobo Arena and uh, no, I don't. I thought that would have been a better for them to do that with no crowd. Uh, so a lot of the things were staged 
for the movie to, uh, you know, certain matches and outcomes. That's the way they were. They were trying to build the Sheik as, first of all, the devil. And <laughs> then they decided to go in a different direction. And then he just became like the spawn of the devil. And he became this wild, vicious man, which went along with the, uh, as far as timing, with his much more violent stance uh, as far as his own matches are concerned. But yeah, other than that, they did a few little extra interviews, but uh, they were fine. It was a really, really good crew of people. That movie, uh, for anybody who's a fan of wrestling history, you get some of the biggest names in the history of the business in that movie. I mean, there's an Andre the Giant segment of, you know, Andre outside pulling up in a car and you see how massive he was getting out of this little car. You have a relatively thin Dr. Rhodes. <laughs> yeah. Cutting an amazing promo. Yeah. Yeah. You've got just a who there's there's a segment in the film where there's um a battle royal. Yeah. Is that the two Some of the royal? names mm-hmm. mentioned that come out are people that there's no footage of that you can find on YouTube and things. So they'll be names that you've only read about or heard about, and there they are in that movie, maybe just for a couple seconds, but it's just a time capsule. And and Terry got to work with one of the most beautiful women of the time in a classic scene. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Gail Palmer, who was a penthouse model, and uh, you all know what Penthouse Magazine is. Yeah. No, explain that to us. What is that? What kind of magazine is that? <laughs> well, it was a nudie magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. And she With was great articles and whatever. Articles. They, they brought me out to the bar, Cobo Arena, and uh, uh, wanted me to do a scene with her. And I said, well, what's the script? Well, there is no script. He's sort of ad libit. Why don't you ask her to uh, or, or offer to buy her a beer and then talk to her about the giant Baba who was at Kobo that night. And that's pretty much the way it went. And she's, and she's, Oh, the giant Baba. I love giant men. <laughs> good for her. She good. That was a good ad lib. Yeah. That was my scene in with the uh, Gail Palmer. Yeah. I don't know how you got through that scene without just going baby, 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 baby. <laughs> I bought her a beer. <laughs> And she hasn't left you alone since. That's right. Yeah. Now, Rodney, we, 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 we talked a little bit about your father earlier. And when I was researching my book and talking to people from all over the place, he was one of very few people that was universally respected by everybody who spoke to him about him. How is it that there are so few people in this business that everybody respected. I mean, and you were lucky enough to be, you know, the son of one of them. What, what, I know he's your father. That's what made him special. But what made him so special to the business in the time period? Well, for him, um, being honest is the main thing. You know, that, that was, that was, you didn't have to, there was no other agenda. This was, this was the job. He's there to do the job. And he didn't sugarcoat it. He told them right up front. He did it in a he did it in a diplomatic way. 
And he also knew what the rest, he knew the wrestlers, he knew their abilities, he knew their weaknesses, he knew their strengths, and he wouldn't ask them to do something that they were not comfortable with because he knew them, because he was in the ring with them. He knew he knew who they were, and, and uh, I think that's the, the main reason he was able to work with them, because he understood what they could do and wouldn't ask them to do stuff that they couldn't or knew that they wouldn't do, couldn't do. I think that was the main thing, and the honesty. Dead very, if uh, I mean, if, unless the company made him a liar out of him, he would be right up front with them, you know, uh, tell them the truth, what it was, and uh, follow through with what was promised. Uh, I think that was the the his main thing because I know because he worked for Nick Gillis, he knows what it was to be lied to. So, <laughs> what was his favorite job? Favorite job? He loved a referee. He loved being in the ring. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's weird. He he that was his main thing. It broke his heart when they took him out um, that he he wasn't really the same. He he still loved doing the wrestling business. But when they took to put him behind the scenes, doing the promotions in and that kind of thing, he missed being in the ring. He missed being a part of what was going on. He absolutely loved it. And uh, he almost quit when they took him out of the ring. Because he loved being a part of it, like everybody. He loved being a part of what was going on in the ring. He loved seeing how much heat he could get with the fans. <laughs> what did he think when you and your brother um, wanted to go into the business? No, there was no. He he was absolutely fine with it, and he began teaching. He began teaching at the beginning. We were never smartened up. He let us learn it on our own. That is fun as on because we would say, OK, well, we saw this. And he said, yes. Did you see that? He said, well, that's that's great. You saw it. But you know what we do? We don't talk about it. <laughs> we don't talk about it. We just move on from that. Right. You saw it. Right. Good. Well, that's the way it is. And we don't talk about it. We move on and we 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 keep going. And when he was doing the booking, he went and got his books because we, we did what he did. So we would play and we would sit down and we would write our own cards out and he would give it to it. We'd give it to him. He said, well, heck, that's the same card you had last week. People are not going to come and see that. Try that again. And and let us, you know, learn through watching him. Uh, but never we never had the conversation, never had the conversation. And in Georgia, as I've described on our show many times, you could go from one town to the next and never see the same match. Whereas when we went to Alabama working for the Fullers, you could see this same exact match from Monday to Saturday, to, from from Saturday to uh, excuse me from Sunday to Friday, and only to change over on Saturday when they did the TV. And we we were appalled when we first went there and we said, wasn't that the same match we just seen? He said that's the way they run the show here. And they didn't people didn't have to you didn't have to worry about smarting the people up. All they had to do is see two shows in the in the week because it was the exact same card every single night and the exact same match with the exact same spots every single match. Exact finish for the entire week. And you could travel for the entire week in, in Alabama. But when we were when we were growing up in Georgia, that didn't happen. We could go for the entire week. First of all, it wasn't the same card every night and we could go the same week and never see the same match. In the entire week, start we would start off and on Monday in uh, in uh, Augusta, go all the way to Marietta to the week and never see the same match. Some of those people would work with each other the same, but it was not the same match. 
in Nikita, you know, it, the WWWF at the time, you know, your big cities, your Boston, your Baltimore, New York, New York, they weren't putting on the same match in every place. I mean, they, they geared it towards the town, didn't they? To a point, because without the Internet, the thing that woke me up one day was I did sneak to the telephone and talk to people in Boston. I almost got murdered a few times by my parents when the long distance bill came in, because that's all we had back then, kids. There was no Internet. That's right. So you'd find out, well, gee, Bruno wrestled Nikolai in the Civic Center in Baltimore. Nikolai swung the chair and missed. It bounced off the ropes and knocked him out. It's like, hey, that's pretty neat. Then the guy in Boston tells you, well, they did that up here, too. And I'm like, what the hell? That's kind of wild. So sometimes they would. They would repeat. It would be like a program type of a situation. And it's just going to be like, let's take, for instance, uh, Bruno against Duncan. You know, Bruno hit the referee. Okay, it's Bruno and Spiro Sarian, which was, whew, it just started uh, on the 17th. It was the anniversary from 1975. The first match in the garden, Bruno's going to, he'd murder, he's, you know, it's a good challenger. We really thought Arian could beat him. Bruno loses his cool, knocks out the ref. You know, it, it was sort of standard. Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston it was happening all over. But you didn't know it because you didn't have any communication with anybody else. But it worked. It was legitimate, believable, and we loved it. Was and it, we didn't, like Nikolai used to tell me, don't make it too complicated. People don't want to follow it. They don't right. want to think. They want to go have a good time. Don't make the confusing Correct. bullshit. That's, right. It made sense. Were a lot of those shows broadcast on TV? The Boston, no. Philadelphia? No. no. They were not on TV? Madison Square Garden. Philadelphia on the PRISM, P-R-I-S-M network, started in 1977. Baltimore, we didn't have cable. So, like, when they had Ali against Inoki, it's like, who the hell's Inoki? We see him in the magazine. <laughs> right. You right. think we're going to put out $30 for those closed-circuit tickets? Boxer versus wrestler was bullshit anyway, even to us. It's, like, not going to happen. That's why they dragged Bruno out of a sick bed with a neck brace to wrestle Stan Hansen in Shea Stadium, or company was going to go bankrupt. But it's like, no, Madison Square Garden started – June 30th, 1973, on the HBO network, they started to do like uh, maybe three months in a row with a break and then two more months and a break. So that's how you would see those live shows if you were lucky enough to have a cable. What about Detroit, Terry? We had uh, it's a syndicated network. And I mentioned earlier we had we did the two shows every week and uh, Detroit and Cincinnati got the brand new show, which. Uh, Eventually, we left the studio and moved that A show to Cobo Arena. So the people were seeing, you know, actual matches from Cobo Arena, which is a side note here. One of the reasons things might have started to decline a little bit, because people were seeing essentially main event matches. You know, they didn't usually show the main events, but sometimes they did. What what year was that 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 happened, do you think? Do you know what year? Yeah, 73. 73. Because Nick Gulas did the similar thing. He started doing a show out of Nashville, which he would show a lot of his main event matches on television on the same show in Chattanooga. And then that night have tried to have the same card. Yeah. People had just seen it on television. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, bought his own television mobile unit. So he no 
longer has to pay anybody else to do the job. He can just roll in the truck and and he had a crew of people who worked with him. They'd uh, tape all the matches at Kobo, go back, edit the tapes, have them done the next day or so. And then at some point during the week, we would head out to one of the other towns on the circuit, Toledo, Dayton, Cincinnati. There's a famous Killer Brooks versus Haystack Calhoun match from Cincinnati uh, that's out there on YouTube. And so they would go to one of these other cities and record. Uh, actually, we did two shows at a time that would air the next two weeks. And that was the same as Kobo. We get two weeks worth of shows out of one uh, Kobo show. But even, foot, even football would black out your own city because sure. people ain't going to come if they can stay home watching on television. It's just yeah. not good business sense. It ain't going to work. Yeah, the, the Detroit uh, big time wrestling, did it run weekly towns? Was it? Yes. And when Bruiser was in his opposition, which he usually was in some way, but uh, 71 or so, uh, Bruiser started again at another arena in Detroit, and they started running Kobo weekly to really mess with him. They brought in uh, you know, Buddy Fuller, Eddie Graham, uh, a lot of the NWA hot shots just to send a message that, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're coming in on someone's territory. And this is a very interesting aspect of territory, the protective nature of one. But, yeah, the NWA was fully behind uh, the Sheik, who was a member of the NWA, even though they did continue to use Bruiser in St. Louis uh, for several months after he started that, but then... I assume it was the Sheik, probably with all the rest of the board members who said, you can't keep Bruiser coming on. He's going against one of our people in his own backyard. And so Bruiser was out of St. Louis for a year and a half. All right, I guess that's where we're going to leave part one at. But we will be back with part two, same roundtable next week. So on behalf of Lauren from Swansea, this is Brian in Buffalo saying good night. People chase a wheel of cheese down a hill.